Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. So here's a thing that everybody sees all the time and may or may not think very much about. It is makeup. Uh, it's such a common part of our society that we really don't think about it outside our own use normally, unless that is like your field of interest or career. Uh, but it really has a rich and lengthy history that spans the globe. It crosses cultures. Uh, it, it goes so far back and it's been in so many sort of uh, places in terms of where it's trended and what kind of things have been used. So that's what we're talking about today. And uh, just to kind of set it up for you, we're going to jump around a little bit from location to location and talk about like how things developed in each location. So the timeline isn't going to be strictly followed, although we will start in the oldest known uh, location of makeup and then kind of end up in the West in the early half of the 20th century where it really became an actual industry. And so we're covering this very wide swath. So I feel like I need to, um, you know, just give everybody a heads up up front that there's probably there's well, there's definitely stuff that isn't going to get covered. Uh, and if we miss something that you're fond of or, you know, you want to know more about or if it's your favorite thing and you wish we had mentioned it, that's Always a good uh, reason to send us an email, uh, and we'll have the contact info at the end of the episode, like we always do. So, uh, for right now, climb into your time machine or your TARDIS, if that's your thing. And we are going to whisk away first to ancient Egypt. So, as early as 10,000 BCE in Egypt, moisturizing emollients were being used to protect people's skin against the very dry desert climate. And perfumes were also popular during this time. Uh, they were pretty much used in ceremonial religious events. And it's interesting because these included ingredients such as peppermint, lily, lavender, almond oil, chamomile, things that are still popular in cosmetics today. Later on in Egypt's history, so around 4,000 to 3,500 BCE, uh, that's when we see the first known use of true makeup. Galena, which is the mineral form of lead sulfide, and malachite, which is a green-hued carbonate of copper, were used as eye enhancements. Uh, and you see these really often in, in Egyptian art. These are minerals that would be ground down and combined with burned almonds, lead, and ash, also ground into a fine powder. And this created coal eyeliner. So one of the most popular looks is that green shading would be used on the lower eye, uh, sort of under the eye, while the charcoal gray and, you know, solid black would be used for the top lid. And this is creating a look that sometimes is still in a stylized version mimicked today and called a Cleopatra eye, although she actually falls a little bit later on the timeline than this. During this time, it also became really popular for people to carry around small makeup boxes with them when they went to social events. These were sort of the first evening clutches. Yeah, and they also sort of represented a certain uh, class level. Like if you were a very fancy person, you could have your own fancy makeup box that you carried around with you. Uh And both Egyptian women and men used lipstick as well. And some lip color during this time was made from a combination of uh, a purplish red dye, which was taken from seaweed. There was also a bit of iodine and a bromine manite that were used. But this is one of those many instances where people suffer for what's fashionable, because since bromine manite is a toxic plant derivative, this made the potential price of beauty very, very steep, not just for the wearer, uh, but also anyone that the wearer kissed. Uh, it could really cause some very severe illness and even death with a surprisingly small dose. 
during Cleopatra's era, which her reign was from 51 to 30 BCE, lip color was a really big trend. Ground carmine beetles gave her lip tint this lush red tone, while non-royals had to go with this mixture of watered-down clay. Yeah, you'll sometimes also see uh, accounts that say that she combined carmine beetles and ground ants to create this color that she liked. Uh, And one of the interesting benefits of these various concoctions that were being used by the ancient Egyptians for beauty, specifically for their eyes, was that they also had antibacterial properties. Uh, in 2009, a team of scientists published a report in Analytical Chemistry uh, detailing the study that they conducted using 52 makeup samples. And these are all samples that are held by the Louvre. And this team used electron microscopy and X-ray diffraction to analyze this makeup. And they were able to identify uh, galena, which is mentioned above, and it was used to make dark tones, as well as uh, lighter colored compounds of sericite, laurionite, and phosgenite. And all of these chemicals are lead-based. So the lead content acted as a toxin to kill bacteria. Specifically, bacterial infections of the eye were a big problem in ancient Egypt. So this use of heavy coal around the eye probably did a good job of warding off a lot of those infections. We also know from art that cosmetics were believed to be a form of magic in ancient Egypt. So the researchers make the case that these antibacterial formulations on the part of ancient Egyptian chemists were deliberate, and they weren't just this accidental offshoot of the quest for beauty. Yeah, the initial use may have been, but they develop it. And there's a passage in their report that reads, quote, One cannot evidently go so far as to propose that the Lorianite was purposely introduced into the composition of the makeup because of any recognized antibacterial properties. Yet one can presume that ancient Egyptian chemists recognized empirically that whenever this white precipitate was present in the makeup paste, their bearers were enjoying better health and thus decided to amplify this empirical protective function by specifically manufacturing Lorianite. So the problem here, which was probably obvious, is that lead, while toxic to bacteria, is also toxic to human beings. So there was a problem. Yeah. Yeah, so that was is sort of the uh the legacy of Egypt is that uh I think we hear a lot more about sort of the lead being toxic to people which it is of course but um it also kind of helping them with their their vision and to prevent ocular problems is less discussed. So having hit on Egypt we're now going to pop over to Asia uh at around 3000 BCE and this is where we to the best of our knowledge we first see the use of uh people coloring their fingernails which was happening in China at this time uh and it's often referred to as the first nail polish but in truth this was more of a stain situation color pigments were mixed in with egg, beeswax, gum arabic, and gelatin to create these stains. And vibrant or deep colors were reserved exclusively for royals, whereas other people would have to go with much paler tones. If we move ahead into about 1500 BCE in both China and Japan, the aesthetic of paleness became the pinnacle of beauty, and rice powder started to be used to create this illusion of a flawless white complexion. And at this point, henna dyes were also used to stain hair as well as facial features. So it's almost like if you've ever seen someone have their makeup tattooed, uh, which sometimes women will still get eyeliner tattoos, this was sort of like the, the semi-permanent version because henna will last a much longer time than if you use coal. Then we can hop over to Greece 
that about the same time as fingernail stains were becoming popular in China, in Greece, having white lead face paint was really all the rage. And they would add a flush to their cheeks over this white paint uh, using this compound that was made of crushed mulberries. And they would crush the mulberries down and then use the juice as a stain. Fake eyebrows also became really popular, and they were usually made with the hair of oxen, which sounds very itchy to me. It does. It also sounds kind of funny to me, just the idea of, uh, you know, augmented fake eyebrows, since it's not the aesthetic of the modern world for the most part, certainly not the Western modern world. Like the idea of people purposely giving themselves really heavy eyebrows uh, strikes me as kind of uh, entertaining. So if we move forward a couple thousand years in the history of Greece uh, to 1000 BCE, you'll see uh, that the white complexion was still very favored at this time and the white lead was still used, but chalk was growing in popularity as an alternative Lip color also became really popular, and it was usually made with clay and red iron. Uh, and now we are going to once again shift gears and locations, and we're going to Mesopotamia. So it's not a long journey at this point. And we're once again going back to 3000 uh, BCE. And this is actually the space between 3000 and 1500 BCE that these things were happening. Uh, and Mesopotamian ladies at this time had a pretty spectacular approach to lip color. They would actually grind semi-precious stones to dust and use that dust as a lip and a face adornment. There was also a lot of use of spiced perfumes during this time, and coal was also used to line both the eyes and the eyebrows. Uh, People in Mesopotamia also used henna as a nail stain. Uh, And perfume concoction was actually taken pretty seriously in this area by the ninth century. I feel like perfume on its own could be a whole other podcast, so this won't be completely in depth, but uh, I will mention it a couple times since it is technically a cosmetic as well. So uh, at this point, we have crossed over from BCE to CE at this point, or common era. Uh, and perfumer Yakub Alkindi, who lived from about 803 to 870, wrote a book called The Book of Perfume Chemistry and Distillation. And this described the uses of many essential oils. Uh, and even former podcast subject Avicenna, introduced new chemistry concepts uh, around this time that really changed the distillation of alcohol for both medicinal and perfume use significantly. So there was uh, some pretty important groundwork being laid in this area at this time. In the year 100 in Rome, uh, a personal interest of mine, because this has always been a trouble spot for me, is when pimple treatment really hit the scene. People in Rome were using a mixture of barley flour and butter to apply to blemishes to try to soothe them and remove the irritation. And this is another location where we see uh, fingernail color becoming popular. They used a combination of animal fat and blood uh, and then applied that to the nails to give a pink to red tint to, the, to their fingernails, depending on the formulation. Like it would kind of vary on how pale or deep it was just by playing with the amounts of blood in the formula. Over in India, between 300 and 400, is when henna became really popular as both a hair dye and in Mendy art. Henna and Mendy are both still around as popular cosmetic practices in India today. Mendy is the, like, the henna artwork on people's skin. Yeah, and it's often so beautiful, like, to see all of the really intricate designs. Um, and before we get to Europe and kind of what was going on there throughout all of these times, uh, do you want to take a quick word from a sponsor? Sure. 
All right. So now jumping into Europe, uh, while there is definitely evidence of the use of rouge, coal, bath oils and perfumes in the Roman Empire uh, at the start of the common era, the fall of the Roman Empire in the fifth century really marks this sort of vanishing in cosmetics in Europe for a time, uh, at least as any sort of common practice. It was probably happening in pockets or in some of the very, you know, sort of upper echelons of society, but it really was not a common thing for people to wear makeup there for a bit. That started to change around 1200 when, thanks to the Crusades, perfumes and other cosmetics started traveling from the Middle East into Europe and were reintroduced into the culture. And between 1400 and 1500, this is when we really first start to see cosmetics as an industry start to heat up. And this was happening in Italy and France primarily. Uh, other places in Europe were using them, but this is where they were mostly being made. Uh, but even so, the concept of perfumes and cosmetics was really still the privilege of the upper classes. This is also the period when the art and science of perfume as we know it today was born in France. Yeah, we mentioned perfume happening in other places uh, earlier, but this is really where like what we would call like our today's sort of perfume production and development. This is really where the modern versions of perfume started. And uh, between 1500 and 1600, you know, we are now into Elizabethan era. And it's no secret that Queen Elizabeth I popularized red hair in Europe. Uh she also, as the Virgin Queen, was a trendsetter when it came to the use of white lead for creating this illusion of youth. Ceruse was made from white lead combined with vinegar, and it caused a number of skin problems. It caused the skin to become gray and shriveled, and Queen Elizabeth is said to have developed this pockmarked appearance to her natural skin, which she just covered with progressively heavier and heavier layers of ceruse. Yeah, so the thing that was really ruining her skin, she was also using to cover up that ruination, and it just kind of kept getting worse and worse. Uh, and it began to be noticed that this white lead-based paint was really causing a problem with people's skin and their health. And so while some women uh, opted instead to use egg whites, they would just use plain egg whites and sort of glaze their face uh, to create this illusion of a smoother, paler complexion, there were plenty of others that just thought that applying any cosmetics was going to create a health threat because it they believed it compromised circulation. People later figured out that ceruse was toxic and it was linked to a number of physical problems, including facial tremors and muscle paralysis, which, given that it contains so much lead, is not surprising. Uh, the toxic compound was also recognized as being lethal with cumulative use, and it's possible that it contributed to Queen Elizabeth's death. Yeah, the, she was also getting older. I mean, there were probably a few different factors involved in that, but it is sometimes mentioned as one of the possible uh, contributors. And in less dangerous beauty doings, though, uh, Elizabeth I had also used a lip color that was made, I find this so charming, from beeswax and crushed flowers. I'm glad you said that because I feel the exact same way. <laughs> Especially <laughs> it sounds much less horrifying after yes. the ruined pockmarked skin from the makeup she had been wearing prior. So to achieve the queen's locks and even to get lighter blonde tones, people used concoctions of sulfur, honey, and alum. Uh, it was sort of a renaissance version of Sun In, if anybody else remembers that product. Uh, it would be applied to the hair and then exposed to the sun to create lighter and brighter hair. 
And that's another thing that, you know, I mean, uh, we mentioned Sun In, which was very popular in the 80s as a thing that people would spray in their hair and it had hydrogen peroxide and would lighten it. But I also think of even like breakfast at Tiffany's where she would put lemon juice on her hair and sit in the sun. It's the same concept. Yeah, that's been around for a while. My mom and her sisters who, you know, were growing up in the in the 40s and 50s would talk about putting lemon juice in their hair and laying out in the sun. Yeah. Don't do do that. It's bad for you. (laughs) (laughs) Please see a licensed stylist or colorist to change your hair color. Less for the Uh, hair, but for the laying out in the sun. Not a good idea. Yeah, all of it. Uh, There are a number of of potential problems there, Uh, especially because uh, this is a complete aside, but some citrus will really react poorly with your skin in the sun if it's exposed and you can get some really, really dangerous and bad problems. So, again, we're we're not saying to try any of these beauty treatments. (laughs) Uh, And if you go online, in fact, there are places where you can find like recipes for cosmetics that were popular in Queen Elizabeth's era. Uh, But they will even say, please don't make these. This is for historical use only, not as an instruction manual for you to create toxins to put on your face. I kind of do want to make some lipstick out of beeswax and crushed flowers, though. I I worry it would be woefully disappointing. And then I would be like, why didn't I just buy something? So uh, in 1800, zinc oxide started to become popular as a face powder. And of course, this is a much safer replacement for the lead and copper that were being used prior and by this point in the timeline, the use of makeup has permeated through almost all of the classes. And the development of cosmetics popularity throughout Europe, specifically in Great Britain, uh, was arrested a little bit when Queen Victoria denounced makeup as completely improper, suitable only for the stage. Uh, and it was makeup's association with prostitutes at this point that led her to this very vocal stance. And so respectable women did not paint their faces. Makeup did remain popular in France during this time, though, even though respectable society in Britain and the Americas did not look upon it favorably at all. It kind of reminds me of the the reality show Frontier House that was on PBS. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they take the makeup away from all of the women, and some of them are extremely sad about that fact. <laughs> Uh, so remembering that France at this time was like, nope, we're still going to wear some makeup. Uh, it should not surprise you that the first modern lipstick was actually manufactured in Paris in 1884. And this came wrapped in silk paper, which just sounds so luxurious to me. And it was made from deer tallow, which is solid rendered fat, which sounds less glamorous, uh, castor oil and beeswax. And just as had been used in Cleopatra's time, carmine dye gave this lipstick its red tint. In the late 1890s, color for the lips and cheeks was offered for the first time in the Sears Roebuck catalog. Yeah, so at this point, we're we're not just in Europe, but also into the Americas and, uh, you know, kind of Western culture at that point. But before we go on to what starts to happen next, uh, which is pretty exciting, do you want to do another word from our sponsor? Sure. So to return to the story of makeup, we're going to jump over to the early 1900s. After Victoria's death, Edwardian society started to really embrace the idea of makeup and cosmetics, although often the use of it was still highly denounced, even by people who were benefiting from them. This was basically the Edwardian equivalent of denying that you got Botox or had surgical touch-ups. 
Yeah, people would be like, oh, are you, you know, using, are you wearing a lip tint? No, this is my natural lip color. It was kind of funny. Uh, and this is really the period when beauty salons became relatively common in the Western world. Although, because of this denial mentality about using any sort of cosmetics uh, was still pretty common. People also denied going to see these, you know, to beauty salons. Patrons would actually often come and go through a back or a side door so they wouldn't be seen uh, patronizing these establishments. Industrialization led to several developments that really sowed the seeds of the cosmetics industry as we know it today. There was the invention of photography, which meant that people started having portraits made, you know, not sitting for a portrait forever from a painter who was going to maybe touch you up as he went, but actual photographs. Um, it became pretty clear to people that having some makeup on would make the picture look nicer. And since most people had to save up for these photography sessions, they had to really make them count. So people started really relying on makeup as a way to make sure they would look their best in the pictures that they were spending so much money on. Yeah, I mean, this is a time when you would maybe have your picture taken a few times in your lifetime. Uh, so each of those pictures had to be the, the best possible. Uh, and additionally, this is the time when mirrors became a commonly manufactured item. So looking glasses have been around since at least 6,000 BCE, and they were certainly familiar objects in European high society in the Renaissance, But the late 1800s and early 1900s was really the first time that mirrors were inexpensive enough that they crossed all class boundaries. And so this meant that everyone became more aware of their day-to-day appearance. And this meant that everyone grew a little more interested in cosmetics. And then there were movies. As actors made the transition from the stage to the screen... Uh, their makeup had to adapt. It quickly became clear that stage makeup did not look good on film, which if you've ever worn stage makeup is not a surprise. It, stage makeup does not look good anywhere except on stage. Uh, it, it was especially on film. It was really too heavy and looked very clownish. And uh, this is where famous names start to appear because Max Factor, who was uh, primarily a wig maker at this time, for film, developed foundation paints uh, that had a more subtle effect. He really is often referred to as the inventor of pancake makeup. And these makeups looked more natural on cinema screens. And he, uh, you know, this development happened in 1914. And this kicked off his now famous makeup company, which initially catered exclusively to the acting world. A year later, in 1915, the Maybelline Company was founded by T.L. Williams, to sell an adapted version of his sister's petroleum jelly and coal dust mascara to the public. This version of mascara came in a cake form, and eventually mascara went through a wax phase before becoming the liquid that most people are more familiar with today. Um, However, Maybelline still makes one of the most highly reviewed mascaras among the general public and makeup artists alike. Yeah, that famous sort of uh, pink and green tube of mascara that Maybelline has manufactured for years and years and years. It's really quite funny if you ever talk to a makeup artist. Most of them will mention that that's still their favorite. Uh, just kind of interesting. It's been around for a 100 years. Not in that form, but the company has. Uh, also in 1915, the metal retractable lipstick tube was invented. So this is when it went from being kind of a, a round cake that you would apply to actually being a thing you could... Uh, you know, twist up and down and 
toss in your handbag and not be a problem. It was easy to carry. It was easy to apply on the go. Uh, although th- this is also a time when stencils were marketed to assure that users could get like that perfect Clara bow pouch. Uh, those would have been a little trickier to tuck into a handbag because they were sort of, uh, I'm estimating the sizes, but you know, I've seen pictures of people where they look like they're probably about a four by four, four inch by four inch card with this little kind of heart shaped lipstick stencil cut out of the middle and you'd put it over your lips and then apply your lipstick so that it would be the perfect shape. After years of catering to film stars, Max Factor decided to expand his business by selling his formulas to the masses. And as the decadence and the glamour of the flapper girl was on the rise in the 1920s, makeup, which is a term he's said to have coined, made movie star looks available to everybody. And this really started a landslide of popularity. So before mass production, makeup had been a little bit tedious. You know, people would have to either figure out ways to kind of concoct their own or they would buy these sort of bizarre formulations and have to apply them and they didn't look very natural. And uh, it, it was just there were a lot of barriers to use. But as it became easily purchased and easily applied, like you didn't need a lot of special skills, it became very quickly adopted into the mainstream. On average, the global beauty market has grown about 4.5% each year for the last 20 years, with some downward fluctuation concurrent with economic issues. I think we actually have an article on the website about uh, the lipstick indicator. Yeah. Uh, and today, the global sales for cosmetics is estimated to be about $170 billion a year. And that breaks down to about $40 billion in the Americas, about $60 billion in Europe, about $60 billion in Australia and Asia combined, and another $10 billion in Africa. And the Western world spends the most per person on cosmetics, but it is really just a shade ahead of Asia on this. Uh, so it's interesting to me, it feels like, you know, industrialization is kind of what has catapulted us into, you know, almost this obsession with beauty and looks and uh, sort of always being super self-conscious about what we look like. Uh, whereas before that, maybe a little more relaxed. I had thought about the role of people having easy access to mirrors in sort of the perception of what beauty is and what you should look like and how much care you should put into your appearance. But it had never dawned on me that photography played a role also. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it's these various things that kind of fold in on themselves and they kind of add layers of consciousness to this, this idea of beauty and looks. And it's very easy sort of, I think, to, to see how that eventually develops and becomes a bigger and bigger thing. And, you know, television changing that as well. And seeing people on TV all the time who are allegedly air quote normal, looking particularly beautiful and wanting to aspire to look the same as them. And how you could see where we landed today, where this is this huge industry. So that is a a sort of, you know, high level, glossy version of kind of how makeup has developed around the world through the years. Uh, I want to do I would love to go back and do more on Asia, which we only briefly covered because there's so much great stuff there. And I'm sure there are people with instant image conjuring going on in their head of like geisha with their beautiful and very specific makeup rules uh, and some of the theatrical makeups that go on there. Uh, and perhaps we will get to that on another episode, but for today, that's where we're at. Uh, I also have a bit of listener mail. Please read it. Are you ready? It is about a boo-boo that I made, and I make it all the time, and I promise I will make a concerted effort to not do this so much. Uh, and it comes from our wonderful listener, Lauren, and she says, Hi, ladies, I'm a big fan of the podcast. 
I've been listening to some past episodes lately and was thrilled to see the Bloomers and Beyond podcast. I'm a fashion historian myself, currently a research associate with the largest cost costume collection in the U.S., Lauren, that sounds awesome. Uh, she says, I just wanted to give you a note on your terminology. Bloomers in the podcast were referred to as the pants worn under the chemise. However, those pants are properly called pantalettes. Bloomers are the outerwear pants offered in the mid-19th century by reformers as a more helpful option for women. They would be worn under a shorter length dress. As an outerwear option, the central seams were sewn closed between the legs. Pantalettes can be worn under bloomers, but the two are not interchangeable. She is, of course, absolutely correct. And I fall into that habit that I think a lot of people do, uh, where bloomers are anything that is sort of the puffy pants that ladies wore in olden times. I promise I will make a concerted effort to fix that. It's one of those things I've read before, but my brain just always goes, bloomers, not right. It's also just fun to say the word, frankly. Uh, so thank you, Lauren. That's awesome. And it's always good to have an expert's uh, touch up to the thing. She gives us also some cool ideas for future podcasts. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also visit us on facebook.com slash mistinhistory. We're on Twitter at mistinhistory. We're at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. And you can find us pinning away pictures of bloomers and pantalettes and all manner of other things at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, which is howstuffworks, and uh, type in the word cosmetics in the search bar. And you'll get uh, a couple of different articles, many, more than a couple, but two that I wanted to point out were why did ancient Egyptian men wear cosmetics and uh, five iconic cosmetics, which mentions the Revlon company, which we did not talk about and was also kind of developing at the same time that Max Factor and Maybelline were happening and their fire and ice campaign, which is important because it was the first advertising campaign to overtly link makeup and sex and sexuality and sexual appeal. So it's uh, certainly an important touchstone in cultural history. If you would like to learn about that, you can. You can look up almost anything else your heart desires at HowStuffWorks.com. And if you just want to visit Tracy and I on the web, you can go to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you will find all manner of show notes and searchable episodes and an archive and some fun pictures. So we hope you do that, and we will see you soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 